Hey there. You are listening to Why Are Dads with Sarah Marshall and Alex Steed. I am the Alex side of that equation. We'll get to Sarah soon and our guest for today's episode, Louisa Smith. We're so lucky to have Louisa, friend of the show, Louisa Smith, on this episode where we talk about big fish. Why Are Dads is a show where we watch movies and talk about pop culture generally, though it's movie focused all the time, to better understand dads and dad themes and very specifically what it's like to be the grown children of dads, (laughs) what the dad aftermath wrought. And this one, this movie, Big Fish, is, is like kind of the ultimate understanding the dad aftermath in one way or another. And we're so lucky that Louisa suggested that we watch it and that Louisa came on to talk about it with us. Oh, you know, I should tell you, or I want to tell you that we have a Patreon, which uh, if you can support, that's fantastic. If you're not able to support, that's also totally fine. We're just glad that you're here. Though people who support the Patreon get a couple bonus conversations every month. So you can find us on Patreon at Dads. Um, okay. So big fish, this is a movie that came out, I believe in 2003, it is based on a book. It is a Tim Burton film. If you listen to the show, there's uh, always a way to find dad themes in every movie, but this is a big one. It's about a man who at the end of his dad's life is hoping for a bit of resolution, uh, a bit of understanding who his father really was. Is he all of these tall tales that he's told his entire life? Or is there uh, is there something else there? Uh, and it, it handles and resolves this in very interesting ways. It's fascinating to me. It's dear to my heart because my dad, if you ever listen to the show, you know this, but my dad it was old. He was an old dad. The dad in this, who's played by Albert Finney, is also old. And I uh, was around for my dad's last stint on the earth. I I took care of him for the last year and a half of his life. And it was a very significant part of my life. I was in my mid to late twenties and certainly hoped for a lot of the resolution that we see, uh, examined in this movie. So this was big for me. We recorded this before the election. And I think maybe there's one or two references that uh, it would be helpful just for you to know that. All right, let's get into it. Let's talk a big fish and why our dads. It occurred to me then that perhaps the reason for my growth was that I was intended for larger things. Well, it's logical if you think like your father. See, to him, there's only two women, your mother and everyone else. They say when you meet the love of your life, time stops. And that's true. I've spent the last three years working to find out who you are. And I've been shot and stabbed and trampled a few times. I broke my ribs twice. But it's all been worth it to see you here now and to finally get to talk to you. Louisa, tell us who you are. So I'm Louisa Smith. I'm a graphic designer and a kind of accidental Twitter personality, I guess. <laughs> how did that happen? Uh, how did that happen? That's an excellent question. I have no idea. I just uh, got on Twitter in 2008 and never shut up. Um, also, my girlfriend Tecla Taylor and I are going to be starting a podcast soon. It's going to be called Primarily Sourced. And uh, what it's going to consist of is Tecla is a historian um, and she will be 
taking primary sources like books and speeches and letters and things like that and explaining them to me. And you will be the person who is us in that scenario. (laughs) I will be the audience asking (laughs) dumb questions. (laughs) That'll be my job. So, Lisa, you suggested we watch Big Fish. Why did you pick this movie in particular? Well, it's one of my favorite movies and it's obviously very dad focused. So I thought it would be a natural fit for the podcast. Dad forward. Yeah, it's a dad forward movie. It's basically all about dads. <laughs> like this, That's the whole thing. So I thought it felt like a natural fit. And then you said that you've also had a lot of requests for this one. Yeah. Sarah, had, had you experienced this before? I was thinking about how we watched a lot of movies that I like saw once as a teenager and have not seen since. And this is another one. I remember seeing this in the theater when it came out and seeing it with my friend's like uncle or something who was a film critic. And after we left, he was like, that was underwhelming or whatever. And I was like, oh, (laughs) that's how I'm supposed to feel about it. Great. Right. Yeah. And I I remember it pretty vividly. Like the stuff that I saw at that age, the images are, you know, and I don't remember it scene by scene. But my memory of the scenes I do remember was very clear. It's Tim Burton. So it's very visually a lot. (laughs) And I think that like at his best... You know, he does scenes that sort of coalesce in something iconic that really remains in your memory, connected to the story in a great way. And yeah, it's a very pretty movie. And I've always just remembered it fondly, maybe mostly for that reason, just for being a really, you know, visually candy-like experience. We talked last week about James Cameron being unsubtle. And Tim Burton is another member of that camp. Yeah. (laughs) And being good at unsubtlety. It's very, very unsubtle. He's like, why would I be subtle? I'm, we're making movies here. Like, <laughs> you want to be subtle? You write an ode. <laughs> Is that subtle? Is that what we call subtle? I don't know. Poems are are at least less like soundtracky and whooshy than movies are. <laughs> Why is this a favorite of yours, Lisa? Uh, well, originally it was a favorite of mine because I'm a big Ewan McGregor fan. Uh, and that's why I watched it in the mm. first place. But really, I think what stuck with me most is the performances from Albert Finney and Jessica Lange, where you see this mature relationship and all of the foibles that that has, but also all of the beauty that it has. What about you, Alex? So I saw this movie in the theater. I, do we know when it came out? Like the mid 2000s, I think? 2003. That was what I was going to say if I had to guess. Yeah, because I felt my like 15 year old self reacting to all these situations. Yeah, I, I saw I saw it in the theater. I remember bawling. Both Sarah and I grew up with an old dad. I grew up with an old dad who since age 12 knew that I was the person who was going to take care of him in one way or another. And I think that this movie was like, it's, it's stuff I knew because I had an active relationship with having to take care of him throughout my teenage. But this movie was really just like, hey, <laughs> it's gonna come to a head at some point. This came out in 2003. I saw it in the theater six years later, my dad would finally die. But this movie is probably the closest representation of what it's like to have an old dad who's dying. And it's a crapshoot about whether or not you're going to get a chance to actually know that father. Because, you know, in so many ways, this movie is about Billy Crudup's character knowing his father's going to die and trying to actually get to know him. And knowability is interpreted in a lot of different ways by the end. But yeah, this was a real confrontation for me. And I, I didn't just cry in the theater. Like the last 20 minutes, I was soaked. Like I bawled. I still do that. Yeah. I've seen this several times now. And, uh, and every time, you know, by the end of it, I'm just like, 
not okay. Uh, my girlfriend leaned over to me. She looked at me just like weeping silently at the end. She said, I know. <laughs> <laughs> when we get to the point where it's, it's kind of all happening, it was like a flashback. Like I was like, oh, it's going to happen again. And I just sat and was like assaulted <laughs> by this beautiful catharsis. <laughs> Like, we're going back in. Yeah. This is like Linda Williams, the academic film scholar, etc., has this theory of body genres in cinema. So, like, pornography, horror, and sentimental movies, <laughs> right? Those are the body genres because they make you come, they make you scream, and they make you cry. Wow. I love that. Oh, are there movies that do all three? I'm sure. Nine and a half weeks. Eyes Wide Shut, I guess? French films. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's all personal, but yeah, I'm sure there are. You know, it's a good challenge if, if anyone wants one. And it's funny because, like, when I first saw this, I didn't cry. And that makes me remember the fact that I wasn't much of a crier as a teenager and, like, rediscovered at some point weepiness in kind of my, like, late teens into early 20s. And now I cry all the time. <laughs> as like it just a basic response to emotional overload too as well as sadness any emotion just right right just anything there's too much of yeah. <laughs> just got to overflow yeah. somewhere <laughs> yeah and it's just it's amazing to think of uh of being able to watch this without crying at one time but like i definitely did and also this kind of goes with our most recent movie Terminator 2 because it's about accepting that your parent was right. Maybe not in the exact way they thought they were or claiming they were, but that they were, you know, it didn't, it came from somewhere, actually. I love to draw parallels to anything Terminator 2, you know? There you go. The Terminator 2 episode made me be like, man, I should have said Mad Max Fury Road because that's also a great dad movie. Mad Max Fury Road was what I watched the day after Election Day four years ago. I was flying Delta and had a choice of movies. And I remember the passenger next to me was watching Zootopia because we were just processing things differently. And I remember just putting on Mad Max Fury Road, like as Hillary Clinton conceded on the little screen in the row in front of me, watching it and just like crying silently. And that was really necessary and also correct. It was a, an accurate response, basically. Yeah. Sarah knows that in a previous life of mine, I was a, a stepfather. My stepdaughter at the time was, I think, when Mad Max Fury Road came out, like three or four. It came out in 2015. Yeah. So she was six. And she loved Fury Road so much. She loved Furiosa. She loved like everything. I remember that. She knew when the Morton Joe's face rip was coming up and she would sort of get out of town. But she loved that movie. But what a satisfying moment. She'll grow into it. <laughs> yeah, she will. Absolutely. absolutely. She, I think she has by now. When I was that age, I liked Amadeus because it had lots of beautiful, colorful <laughs> scenes and music you could dance around to and beautiful costumes and and then this is a very lovely movie memory of my dad when I was little. At the start of Amadeus, he, when F. Murray Abraham, you know, cuts his throat out of guilt, um, my dad told me that Salieri cut himself shaving. And 
I really, as a kid, could not tell the difference between a little bit of blood and a huge amount of blood. I was just like, okay. But I would say that would give you like an equal chance of getting like a huge complex around shaving. And you're like, oh, my God. Uh, for sure. <laughs> right. Well, and to be fair, I don't shave anything. You know what? <laughs> Maybe that all worked out. And these things definitely are unrelated. I don't know. But if he like scared me off shaving accidentally by making me appreciate Amadeus as a child, that might have been his most successful gambit as a parent. <laughs> That's also the most on-brand Sarah Marshall outcome I could possibly imagine. Saw Amadeus never shaved. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, big fish. <laughs> big fish, right. So what is your relationship with your dad? And do you see, like, do you see parallels to this movie with your relationship with your dad? Or is it just like, this is a lovely movie about a dad? So it was a little bit more of the latter for me. But as I get older, I'm more inclined to think of it in terms of my relationship to my own dad in some ways. I bucked the trend on this show by having a nice relationship with my dad. Uh, lucky me. Yay! We welcome it. Yay. <laughs> He's an older dad. You know, Lindy West in her book Shrill talks about having a 400-year-old jazz dad instead of a 300-year-old uh, rock and roll dad. And I had a 500-year-old classical music dad um, <laughs> because he's a concert pianist and a, and a piano professor now retired oh wow the thing that draws that i can draw a parallel between these two with is just that that sense of never really knowing your dad as a younger person there's something bigger than life you know i grew up watching my dad play on stage the the overriding focus of his life was always the piano and it's not that he didn't love us and wasn't an involved dad he was but like 12 hours a day we're at the piano you know <laughs> you wind up growing up not really knowing them as people and then one day you grow up and you're like well what else is there um and i think that's where uh, will is in this movie where he's it's not that he has had any lack of involvement from his dad although his dad has been away quite frequently but it he has all these stories but that's all he has and he doesn't know what's true and what's what's real mm. it does that thing where it acknowledges that like a lot of our relationships with our dads good bad or otherwise are maybe 10 stories that have become a myth. And the cool thing about this movie is it is it takes the mythology literally and it makes them myths. We have all these like mythical characters who from our dad's stories, you know, the giant wasn't seven feet tall, it was whatever, 20 feet tall. It kind of walks us through this situation where we recall all these stories of this dad left to believe them. Literally, we think that they're entirely made up. And then and then we're led to a place where we see that there's actually some truth to all of them. And maybe the, you know, the character of our father is the part that colors them. Sarah, do you, with regard to like your relationship with your dad, are there mythical stories or is he just like, does he tell stories from the past or is, is he one of the enigma dads who says nothing at all? Well, I feel like stories are a way of being an enigma, partly because if you have certain stories that you tell about yourself, you know, it's like state approved history that sort of skips over several years at a time, paves over past injustices. I don't know. I mean, we all have a sense of history like that. But yeah, my dad is very he has a set of stories about himself and he likes to be the one telling them. And he's also an exaggerator. And I was a kid where like, if an inaccuracy was just being said and uncorrected publicly and I couldn't correct it and people believed it, I felt like I was going to lose my mind. It was like my blood was 
itching. And so my dad would like, he would tell a story to other adults in front of me or where I could hear him about like something that he and I had done together. And he would like remember it a certain way and then give me like a line of dialogue that I hadn't said and like make it into this story where like I didn't recognize myself and obviously where like I tended to behave according to his ideas about me, which wasn't always super flattering. In these stories, I was like shrill and negative and stuff. (laughs) And so he would tell these stories about me and I would be like, that didn't happen. Like I didn't say that. And I have a better memory than you because I am a child and I wasn't drunk at the time, you know, and those stories cannot be corrected in his mind. So I feel like fundamentally I identify with having tremendous resentment towards someone over remembering you wrong, over playing fast and loose with the truth and just not being accountable to you, their child, in a way that you wish they would be. I don't mean to be flip in asking this question, Sarah, but have you ever consciously identified the through line between that tendency and you being a co-creator of You're Wrong About? No, not until today, but I'm glad we got here. (laughs) And to liberate maligned women of your dad's stories, who was you, and then... (laughs) You're the original bimbo. Yeah, you're the original bimbo. We found you. (laughs) I am in my own home. In my home. This is what childhood is. There's like tabloid media about you around the house. Oh my gosh. Sarah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I had several experiences with my dad where he was telling a story. It was like a totally casual thing that happened at like a grocery store in his retelling of the story like the next day became like he had a fight with somebody and he was triumphant in the fight and I remember one time I looked at him I was like that didn't happen and he looked at me like I don't know if it was like he actually remembered it happening that way or he was so used to kind of telling stories in that style but either way it was like I don't need you to see me right now don't fuck this up for me kid (laughs) How dare you perceive me? When did that happen? (laughs) Exactly. You know, essentially at the end of this movie, we see Will experience some evidence of all of his dad's stories being true in some way. Some of these things actually do happen to him, but like something's happening in his brain where he has to augment them in a weird way. But to actually see one of these like stories of his take place in real time, I was like, how much of this is the truth. Like some of this is true. You're having weird, true experiences, but turning them into something else in these conversations. We are on unreliable narrators. And I think that story and the movie really points to the human need to turn things into a recognizable narrative. Like we can't just let events be random. They have to be part of some bigger story. Mm. And then that catches Ed at the end when he realizes that he doesn't know the end of his own story and he has to have Will make it. That's such a beautiful scene. So Ed has had a stroke. He's very close to the end and he passes to Will the opportunity to tell the story. Like, what do you what do you make of that, Louisa? I feel like he just wasn't ready to go without it being something more meaningful than just an old man has a stroke and then he dies. Like his whole life has been larger than life, at least the way he's told it. And he needs it to finish that way, too. And and at last there's this opportunity where they they finally bond over their abilities both as as writers in their own way. Mm. Alex, that reminds me of another one of our recent movies. Well, we haven't released this episode yet, but we did record it on uh, The Royal Tenenbaums, where 
Royal Tenenbaum has his headstone read something like died heroically saving his family from a shipwreck. (laughs) (laughs) Rescued them from the wreck of their family. And it was a shipwreck that, you know, he had caused, but he also rescued them. And then he died. It feels like there's something about Tim Burton uh, then being one-upped by Wes Anderson. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And I was actually noticing that about this movie because there's something extra Wes Anderson-like about this that I don't see in other Tim Burton movies. Maybe he always does this, but like the combination of the color palette and the vintage setting of some of it and the fact of things being perfectly centered. It's jarring to see a colorful Tim Burton movie. This in the Willy Wonka movie, it's it's weird to see him use a color palette. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's actually a few people of color in it, uh, which is unusual for the unbearable whiteness of Tim Burton. Yeah. Big Benson plays a doctor, which was like one version of my childhood superimposed onto another one. (laughs) Or as I know him, Isaac from Sports Night, the best boss in the world. (laughs) I had forgotten that that's him. Now I remember his um, Rosa Parks speech, which was wonderful, where he talks about how no young white man has ever gotten anywhere with him by comparing himself to Rosa Parks. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, what I mean, what do you make of that transition about Will sort of finally being able to participate in this exercise, not just accepting these stories, but about being able to fabricate them as well? Well, speaking of being good at being unsubtle, I love the fact that the son of the larger than life father is named Will Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, I never noticed that. Because I don't like movies trying to keep me from noticing things. And <laughs> now all we need is Sarah Connor narrating why Will Balloon's name is important. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is a universal parent-child story where, like, as a child, you were, like, high and mighty about your parents and the compromises they made and the regrettable things that they did. And then you get older and time passes and you make those compromises and you do those things, like probably not all of them, but probably some of them. <laughs> and then if your your father is dying and has just had a stroke, then I think that's a prime moment for you to recognize that you would also feel bereft without a better story to be part of and that you need this too. I feel like a lot of Will's character is just centered around not being his dad not being like him at all always telling the truth always i think he's a journalist i know he's a writer oh no this is getting too personal he is a journalist and he's just gone the opposite way so his dad stays in the south and he moves to paris and his dad tells tall tales and he's a journalist who has dedicated himself to telling the truth about everything i never thought about paris as being the opposite of the south but i love that so much i think he's just like trying to get as far away from his dad and his dad's life as possible totally his dad's a sailor Salesman, he's obviously not. He's doing the white collar thing. I also pull it back to, you know, there's the point where you're going through the town of Spectre for the first time. Ed is explaining to the giant Carl about Norther Winslow, the great poet who he always heard had gone to Paris to be a writer. And I wonder if that sort of unconsciously is supposed to have influenced Will in where he decided to go. Because he won't get stuck in Spectre. He'll go to Paris and be a writer. Oh my god, that's amazing. One of the interesting things about these tales that Ed tells, you know, it reflects, I think, a reality about parenting where 
he's like, look, I was trying to do my best and I was trying to do what I was supposed to do. And, and a reality is that it's like, it took me away from being your dad in real time a lot of the time. And clearly that hurts you, but like it was fantastic. And these are the reasons why it was. And these are the things I encountered. I pass this on to you. One of my dad's legendary stories is this story in which my dad was a drunk for years that led to the dissolution of his first family. And so he tells a story where he was, you know, out for a drink in the mid seventies and a woman sort of careened into the parking lot while he was getting out of his car. And part of the detail of the story is you could fit a razor blade between the cars. They were so close and they went in and my dad's doing his thing. And the woman comes in is clearly wobbly. And then the cops come in and arrest her and she just killed two girls in a crosswalk. Um, he, there are gruesome details to the story that are unnecessary, but for him, that was the, that was when he became a dry drunk and quit drinking. And he would tell that story on a regular basis, I think, as obviously as a cautionary tale. And he'd tell that to me as a cautionary tale. He'd tell it as a story about his feat of not drinking. But the untold part of that story is I was a drunk who had by that point abandoned my family. I think part of these stories that we see Ed telling is he's like telling all kind of the best parts of the story to you know, gloss over the fact that like while he was living his life and while he was doing the things that he felt he needed to do and while he was doing things like saving a town, he is not able to acknowledge that he wasn't present in ways that his son ended up needing to be him to be there. The, the fabulous stories make up for the absence of his presence in his life. Precisely. And I just sort of put something together for me listening to that, which is that my dad is kind of the, the opposite in that he's had all kinds of wild lifetime adventures like he at one point went to Gabon and did a concert for the president um with like the defense ministry sitting right there and and like uh, and he's been all over the world doing these things and I get not many stories about it it's like these big colorful adventures that I just see some photographs and like a few stories but you're left not knowing so much so this feels like kind of the opposite of that, where they he's got all these wonderful stories and none of the details. And I've just got like the little mundane details and none of the big stories. Do you have a sense of why that is? He's just a kind of retiring, soft-spoken guy. And he, he puts his whatever theatricality he has on the stage when he's when he's playing. Yeah, but that's hard, hard for a kid to interpret. <laughs> Did you have feelings about that that have since changed? Like, do you, was there a time when you were like, oh, I guess like dad's just quiet. And now you're just like, no, he's just quiet. <laughs> um, we've definitely gotten closer over the years. When I was a kid, I, um, at least as a teenager, we, we had a lot of fights. Um, he was more, more conservative than I was, but he has actually softened up and mellowed a good bit. And uh, we're both better at talking about our emotions now, or at least I am. <laughs> Uh, he's become a Democrat. That helps. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll keep thinking on that as we go, but it's helping me unpack some things. What was a moment that struck you in a big way watching this go? Well, the moment that I've always had in my head um, is the, the most affecting moment that I remember from when I saw it as a teenager is when Jessica Lang gets into the, the tub with Albert Finney sort of as things are getting real. And this is, you know, in the present day, mm. real world palette. I just remember seeing it at the time as this gesture of deep intimacy and just sort of what I thought marriage could be and the sort of comfort of, even in this very dire time where they're, they're close to death, it's like, 
I don't know why I love it, but I guess that was one of the things that I remembered very clearly from this. We don't often get real moments of deep love and intimacy between older couples in film, I feel like. Yeah. That's a big one for me, too. I don't think I'll ever dry out, is what she says. And it's, oof. Yeah, I've always remembered that. Another scene that I always think of is when he sees Alison Lohman for the first time. Alison Lohman, who is the young Jessica Lange. Like, I think also it's, it's interesting that we're given a connection here maybe between fabulism and romanticism. I mean, there's a reason that the phrase love story exists, right? Like they are stories. How do we tell the story of the person we love? And like, how do we tell that story together? If you are telling this grand romantic story to and about each other, then like you will believe that story. Well, and and as um, Helena Bonham Carter's character says later, to your father, there's only two women in the world, your mother and everyone else. I feel like that's very true. And it's it's it winds up being almost more of a story about love than it is about fatherhood sometimes, because he is very obsessed with his wife to the point where even though he's telling so many stories about himself as a dad and all this, but he he tells us nothing about his own parents through the whole thing. The only time they show up is like is his birth and they're just sort of background characters. Right. That reminds me of how Harper Lee, in writing To Kill a Mockingbird, had a living mother when she was a child, but who was this complicated person and who she, one can imagine, she had a complicated relationship with her mother. That's kind of a thing that happens. And so in writing this, in some ways, pretty close to reality novel version of some of her own experience, she's like, kill the mother, no mother, no mother at all, just a lovely dad. That's the family. When we self-mythologize, like we just neatly excise like whole areas of our lives. We're like, I can't get stories out of that part. So it, it's, uh, I guess, no, it's lost, lost knowledge. Or that's not the story I'm prepared to tell about myself. So in the last part of the movie, while Will is telling the story of his father to his father, the story of his end, all of the characters who we've come to know in the movie come together. It's this big, beautiful action scene. It's like actually like really exciting. And like, because it's couched in these palettes that we've talked about, it's like not just exciting, it's an interesting juxtaposition to like see like this action scene happening in this like nostalgic hue. But the thing that really triggers the <laughs> triggers the tears this time is when they get to the funeral and he sees all of the characters in real life and he's able to confirm, as Sarah said at the top of the episode, like some truth about his dad. He was able to understand that not only was it not total fabrication, these people existed in some form. How does that part strike you and, and what do you make of that scene where Will's able to confirm some of this? Like you, it's hard to think about it uh, without like a veil of tears through which to watch it. It's confirming what Sandra says a few scenes earlier, which is not everything your father said is a complete fabrication. It's just really wonderful, I think. And and seeing that everyone is not just there, but just a little bit different than he said, that, that the giant is seven feet tall, not 15 feet or 20 feet. <laughs> um, and the, the twins are not conjoined. Still a very big guy. That's actually, uh, while I was... Preparing for this, I found out that that's uh, that actor Matthew McGrory had the Guinness World Record for tallest actor at seven foot six. This is a weird way to know him, but he's in all of Rob Zombie's movies, and I like him so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Unfortunately, he did die young, but yeah. Aww. 
No, what's the giant's name? Is it Carl? Carl. Oh my god. Carl. So oh. Good. He's such a Carl. <laughs> like, Carl. Yeah. I love him so much. Carl the giant. And, and you can see how myth- mythology happens so easily because you want to convey the idea of like the tallest man I'd ever laid eyes on. And like that doesn't feel like seven foot six. So you're like, oh, that's no, that doesn't feel that number doesn't excite me, you know, and like verbally, like you have to translate that feeling to a number that's exciting to people. You gotta just zhuzh it up. Like, I have a book on, like, the great days of the circus. It's like a 60s children's educational book, and I love the transition from the era of these beautiful, illustrated, colorful circus advertisements where there's so many elephants and horses and trick riders and just all this wonderful parade of animals and everyone looks so happy and then the era of photography comes in and you realize that the circus is the most depressing thing you can imagine. You know, the circus has been getting by on the idea of the circus for a really long time. Yeah, like I definitely want to go to that circus that is depicted, particularly <laughs> for the um, like trapeze cat and the little tiny dogs doing all their tricks. That's, that sounds great. And Danny DeVito, the werewolf. And Danny DeVito, America's dad is here. America's dad. America's Frank. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he's like America's real dad. Like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> totally. I actually, I've been watching a lot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia lately. And one of the things I've been realizing about it is like, obviously Frank is like, not a good person. None of these characters are. That's the, like, you know, nutshell of the show. They're all bad people. Millennial Seinfeld, I guess. But I cannot think of another program where a man spends this much time with his adult children. (laughs) There's all kinds of unwholesome stuff, but they're mainly, like, having adventures together. Like, the premise of most episodes is a theme. It's a boat. They have a boat now. Boats, you know? And then they just have little adventures, and he just has adventures with the children he raised and the child he maybe fathered. I don't know. It's like the boxcar children is like the, it's like the kids and that grandpa they stay with and all their adventures they get into. Forgot about that grandpa. It's 21st century boxcar children. (laughs) Yeah, it totally is. Now I really want somebody to make a like boxcar children all grown up, like depressing sitcom. (laughs) Yes. So going back to that funeral, the thing that gets me too, outside of him just seeing that a lot of it, there was some truth to all these these stories by his dad, is there's this beautiful series of shots in which we don't hear any dialogue, but the camera just shows these people sharing stories together and like joyfully sharing stories. And, you know, they're, they're essentially telling the stories that we're told are what keep you immortal. You have these stories that keep you alive after you die. And they're just so beautifully and joyfully sharing together and especially right now that we're not all able to be in rooms together just seeing these people you know so animated and so lovingly talking to each other about this person that they knew and loved that hit I think closer than it than it normally has it very much reminded me of my grandmother's funeral actually she was a very beloved person but had um had alzheimer's and uh, had spent a few years going slower and slower downhill. Um, But when we all got together, you know, we brought pictures and we laughed and we told stories and we actually, my uh, mom's side of the family, this is her side of the family, we enjoyed it so much that we all got 
together again at the same hotel the next year and had a funeral reunion. (laughs) (laughs) But that is like, I feel like that's the cliche of what everyone wants their funeral to be, that everyone gets together and shares stories about them. And like, I mean, I certainly aspire to live the kind of life where like that's possible at the end of it. Yeah. Ed has lived this life where everybody adores him except his son (laughs) because he's he's presented this this facade in some ways to the to the world but as as will learns that's not the facade that's just part of who he is will's probably going to spend a lot of time in therapy after he realizes that he was able to come to terms with who his dad was maybe later than he would like to have done that hopefully they have a funeral reunion because that sounds real great (laughs) i know right i think everyone should do that just come back a year later and process you know what you've learned since then and just get together in the hotel get in the pool it's fine yeah i think that that's good that's good advice so when my dad when my dad died i would again i was tasked with taking care of him and and that's tax like being a caretaker caretaker is taxing but it was the funeral itself where all the family fishers came out you know because like often you've learned throughout your entire familial life this shit is fucked in particular ways but we know how to navigate it all and like part of it is navigating like our dad and so like he whatever and then when that person's gone and then you have a social event where you get all the people in one place together there were certainly a lot of friends saying nice things and there was certainly a lot of family hating the hell out of each other (laughs) this funeral felt nice and aspirational and i was like oh this is this is wonderful i'm glad ed I'm glad Ed has this, even though Ed is, you know, flawed in the ways he is. I'm, I'm glad he got this opportunity. Okay, so we know who the father is, who is, it's Ed. (laughs) Who is the daddy? I'm having a toss up between Jessica Lange and Danny DeVito, so. Oh. This feels like an apples and oranges kind of a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jessica Lange because she is cool and in charge and always very much herself as Sandra. Um, She's just like this perfect archetype of 
a certain kind of Southern woman who is actually very much like my grandmother, not the grandmother I spoke of before, but the, the other one, my paternal grandmother, who's just elegant and put together and aware of Ed's bullshit and not tolerating it necessarily as much as somebody else might have. Um, so she's able to keep him, you know, gently in line and she's just sort of managing everything. Um, so that's, why and then Danny DeVito because you know he's Danny DeVito so (laughs) (laughs) and he's got his little circus coat he does also I can we talk about the moment where Mr. Soggy Bottom just opens a gun case that he apparently keeps in his giant pants (laughs) 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 I had forgotten that and it was a beautiful moment I was gonna say Danny DeVito myself I gotta say but yeah I see it with Jessica Lange too I think that this is also I don't know, not a I, not a daddyless universe, but maybe some part of me wants to call it that because it's like there's, I guess because the like, the bad blood between father and son in this feels like it's not about a father trying to dominate his son. It's about a father like not caring enough. Yeah, it's it's not that he doesn't care about Will or or doesn't care what he needs. It's that like what Will needs is so fundamentally opposed to his own character which is to be this larger than life person and to couch everything in these like in parables rather than just like straight talk i think often we'll watch a movie and there'll be a person who is supposed to be the dad and then there are other people who like either as informed either by our kink or by by way of their uh authority they are a counter daddy role and i don't think that exists in this movie we don't require an anti-daddy right danny devito is the kind of the daddy of the circus and gives him a lot of opportunity in in interesting ways and so i think that that is probably the most literal fit and also is is abusive in many ways Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is very abusive he uses will's desire to know something about the woman he'll eventually marry to exploit four years of free labor out of him we're led to believe (laughs) he turns out into just an unpaid intern for four years in order to get a woman's name (laughs) it's called the disney college program my take because of exactly that situation where there isn't necessarily like a counter binary i'm just gonna select carl because i like carl so much even though i couldn't remember his name yeah i'm gonna say carl too he's he is very giant we love carl i'm a little mad that we were denied like carl's makeover montage yeah which is like implied by him appearing Mm. in like regular people clothes (laughs) that would totally fit there's like you could do a very snazzy department store sequence in this time and place in america right and and just like the tailor getting out the extra big tape measure and then that's still not being long enough you know what are what are our closing big fish thoughts? I appreciate that this is a movie about the themes of fatherhood that isn't made in the fatherhood palette. I know that I keep harping on color, but color is truly very important to me in media. Like if a movie is just sort of drab and unpretty for no real reason, I want it to justify that to me in some way. And I think that a lot of movies just do their colors in like, blues and grays or like beiges and dark like bruise palettes war trenches smoke yeah it's a movie about fatherhood that doesn't look like d-day yeah which is a nice change (laughs) exactly exactly it's a movie about fatherhood that takes its time and goes to the circus and that expresses you know a 
an imperfect father who's imperfect not because he's this tyrannical, power-hungry figure, but because he's solipsistic, too enchanted by his own mythology to envision a solar system that doesn't revolve around him or something like that. I don't know, that's a movie about fatherhood that isn't insisting that it's the darkest, grimmest, most serious thing you could possibly go see today. There's a, a line that I like so much I wrote down, which is, you tell lies, Dad. You tell amusing lies. And like, what else is storytelling, really? I love his delivery on that, Will's delivery on that line, and then the one that follows it, which is, you're like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny rolled into one, just as charming and just as fake. Because the way he delivers it sounds like something he has said to himself a thousand times, and now he's finally getting the chance to say it out loud. <laughs> Yeah. When he was walking around Paris, he was like coming up with his dad aphorisms. His dad burns. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I see on, on one hand, this is certainly a movie that satisfies uh, Sarah's desire to let people know that like eyewitness accounts aren't 100 percent accurate. <laughs> but, you know, I think that this movie is about a process in which a son goes from thinking that it's about amusing lies to it's about embellished truths. And I think that that's sort of a, that's a fascinating arc and like an important difference. There certainly are parts of what he's saying that are not true, but they point to the larger truth. Like Sarah said earlier, it's like, it's like the truth of the matter of someone being seven feet tall, that's a fact. But to say that they're 15 feet tall colors how you felt about the fact that they were seven feet tall. An interesting trick in the movie is that the longer it goes on, the more semi-realistic the tall tales become. So like at the beginning, they're very cartoonishly, obviously fake. And then as you get further in, you get to like the scene where Ed reappears after having vanished in the war, having gone missing. And that's a very like emotionally real scene that's one of the like seven times that i cry in that movie um which is when when he like releases the sheet when she's hanging up the laundry and there he is and they kiss and it's very you know but that feels more real than a lot of his stories do and as the the stories continue to go on you, you start seeing more of the grains of truth in them yeah and i think it's it's also about discovering the difference between amusing lies and essential lies or how they can be the same thing you know again if you're young and feel that the truth is fundamentally accessible if you want it, then you'll be humbled over time into realizing that that's not particularly true and that you're going to behave in ways that you regret and life is going to be difficult in ways that maybe you can't metabolize without creating a mythology about it. And I feel like just accepting your own humbling with age is one of the things that can allow you to accept who your dad is and why. Show me that smile, oh, show me the smile. Don't waste another minute on your crying when no one the end. The best is ready to begin. Oh, oh, as long as we got each other, we got the world spinning right in our hands, baby.
each other, sharing the laughter and love. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Why Are Dads. Thanks so much for showing up. Thank you, Louisa, for being a part of this show and hanging out with us. We had a tremendous time. Thank you. We are so lucky to have Carolyn Kendrick on board who produces our episodes and creates original music and creates these sound collages at the beginning. Carolyn has an EP you should know about. A lot of folks ask us about the music and the episodes and sort of what the story is. Uh, Carolyn is a very accomplished musician. Carolyn has an EP called Tear Things Apart. Uh, You can find it at Carolyn's website, carolynkendrick.com. So Carolyn sang two songs in this episode. Uh, Both don't appear in Big Fish. You'll be surprised to know, I'm sure. (laughs) But I thought that they fit the theme of the movie and of our conversation. And they've both been on my mind quite a bit lately. The first is T-Rex's Life's a Gas. And the second is technically called As Long As We Got Each Other. Uh, But you might know it as the Growing Pains theme song. I picked this for a couple of reasons. One, uh, if you've listened to this show more than once, there's a chance that you've heard Sarah refer to her adoration <laughs> for the dad portrayed in Growing Pains, portrayed by Alan Thicke. Uh, and I also just thought that it fit also with the themes that we discussed in this episode. One interesting fact, or a couple interesting facts. One, it was uh, written by John Bettis, who wrote the lyrics, and it was written by Steve Dorff, who wrote the music. Steve Dorff is Stephen Dorff's dad, and uh, he is a celebrated country uh, musician, songwriter, etc. has been at it for years and years and has written some songs for one of Carolyn's favorites, George Strait. And uh, the other is, I didn't know this, but uh, BJ Thomas sort of almost always sang the male parts in the song over the course of the seasons. But uh, I just found out that Dusty Springfield was part of the duet in season four. So there you go. Go Dusty. What do you need to know for next week? Oh, Here's the thing. We're going to watch. We're going to keep up this theme where we're watching movies that make us feel not dark as hell. (laughs) We're going to take a different approach because we had a really phenomenal guest that suggested we watch this movie. Uh, We saw Clear and Present Danger. (laughs) You would think a movie about a corrupt president and about Jack Ryan and about sort of like having to save the day, et cetera, et cetera, might be too much for the times we're living in right now. But as our guest for next week, Jamal Bowie, says... Uh, this movie feels like wearing a snug sweater and I agree entirely. So yeah, there we go. Jamel is going to be with us. It's really great. We (laughs) booked Jamel and you're wrong about book Jamel without knowing at the same exact time. And I have no idea how that worked out. So join us next week where we talk about clear and present danger. And then we are going to get into holiday movie season with just the most tremendous selection of guests. I can't, I uh, can't say enough good about what is coming at you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Wired Dads. Follow us on social media if that is a thing that you do. We're very active there. <laughs> We're grateful you are too. And uh, and remember, you can find us on Patreon at Why Are Dads. All right, I think that's it for now. So long. <laughs>